TGIF one and all. It is Friday, April 29th of 2022, and this is Mexico in Focus, the podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. Another scary day here in New Mexico as winds are whipping and we know there are new evacuations in place on the southern edge of uh, two wildfires that have combined into one up in northern New Mexico. This is the Hermit's Peak and Calf Canyon fire. We are keeping our best thoughts out for everybody in the state uh, as we deal with what we've been talking about for several weeks now, just an unbelievable fire season already still in April. So our thoughts go out to everybody today. We're hoping that nothing crazy happens with these winds today. And the fire crews have had a chance to sort of prepare for that today. We know this is not over by a long shot. And that's where we're going to kick things off in this uh, edition of the podcast. And particularly with our line opinion panel, talking about the reaction here in New Mexico to this rash of wildfires to kick off the spring season. And joining us on the line panel this week, we have two former state senators on one side of the aisle, the Republican side of the aisle. We have Diane Snyder and on the Democratic aisle, uh, side of the aisle, Dee Dee Feldman, both line regulars and no strangers to the show. We also welcome back Ed Perea. He's a lawyer and a public safety consultant good group of people to talk about all of this, especially because one of the things around uh, the reaction, of course, we have a lot to dive into here with the wildfires. You know that the governor's issued a state of emergency, asked for federal help. We're going to get into all of that. We also know that there are fire restrictions, uh, campgrounds, uh, public spaces, and we also know the governor is encouraging municipalities to uh, put a ban on firework sales for the time being at least. And that's where our former lawmakers' perspectives will come in handy. We have talked about this before on the show during bad wildfire seasons, but the governor cannot do that herself unless the legislature were to pass a bill that would allow for that. So it is up to municipalities and given how crazy the fire season is this year, and until we get just a lot of moisture, we're going to be in this route and in this mode for our years to come. And so is it time for that to change? So all that and much more coming up here in this great conversation. Let's send it right to host Gene Grant. Hello, welcome to our line panelists this week. Welcome back to form, welcome back to former state senator Dee Dee Feldman and Diane Snyder both. And it's great to see attorney Ed Perea back with us as well. We're going to start with what's been the most pressing issue the last few weeks: wildfires burning across the state. We gave you some context and perspective on why this fire season started so early during the longest season in our land wildfire special, which aired last week. Now, scientists have explained that increased drought is only making these fires worse. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham has already issued an emergency order saying 93% of the state is currently dealing with severe drought conditions. The governor and state forest officials are asking for more resources and more fire crews. Ed, let me start with you. Is this the right move at the right time? Absolutely. All the, all the uh, additional resources that we can get to deal with these problems mm -hmm. and, and unprecedented problems. We've always had 
fires, wildfires for a whole variety of reasons in this state. But I think we are looking at unprecedented uh, times. We have fires in the north. We have fires in the south. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's creating a lot of damage to the structures out there. Uh, there apparently are, are issues with the number of, of firefighters who are available to fight these right. fires. So that's yeah. another uh, you know, manpower issue that we're, we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And the longer we, it takes to control any of these fires, the more destruction, environmental destruction, and destruction to private property, it's going to, it, it'll, it'll cause. And so, uh, yeah, this is definitely the right, the right move. I think uh, if it's the first, second, third step, that's good. But we need a lot more efforts in which to bring people in, bring resources in, whether it's federal, whether it's sharing with other states, mm-hmm. in order to get these fires under control. We are very early in the season, and so there's a lot more. To go. So the more we do now, the better off we're going to be down the road. Good point. Senator Snyder, you know, the governor requested 25 additional support officers to help coordinate emergency response. That's a good start for sure. Is there something else in your mind's eye or in your view uh, the governor could be doing at this point? I, well, I think she's doing what she's legally allowed to do. Okay. The legislature, and I'm going to defer to Senator Bellman on all the details because mm-hmm. she was very active with several governors about getting uh, some control over over uh, fireworks. But I did a little research. I wanted to check and see where New Mexico fit in mm-hmm. nationally. And there's a wonderful re- uh, studies, but this was from 2021. And the top five states do not include us. It's California, Oregon, Washington, Montana, and Texas. Mm-hmm. New Mexico is 11 at having the most wildfires. But the thing that absolutely struck me the most is that through their studies and collection of data, 85% of the fires are started by human beings or can be tied to an action of some, whether it's a campfire or a a cigarette tossed. That's not all arson, it's unintentional. fires started by mm-hmm. human beings, you know, and that scares me to death. Mm-hmm. I think about it and I go, how do we get people to be, I mean, we see some, even Smokey the Bear, all of the Smokey right. Bear, pardon me, not the, no, the, the Smokey <laughs> Bear, uh, is how much more education can we do to get people to understand that they are responsible they have an obligation when they go into our state forest or our national forest. They're talking and playing with everybody's future. Mm-hmm. And particularly when you're talking about the devastation of homes and livestock and families. We've been very fortunate this year. We've only lost two dear, wonderful older people. But that's just lucky that we haven't lost more Agreed. by all of the fires going on. So I, I guess what I, the point I'm trying to make is, and I don't know how to do it, is we've got to get people to step up, do the education, and make them understand that 85% of our fires are related to a human being's actions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how we do it, but we've got to focus on that in some way. Let me ask Senator Feldman about how we do it. Is it time for, or maybe we should have had it on the air already, a major awareness campaign? I realize April kind of took everybody a little bit off guard, but and we can be forget they can be forgiven for that. But should at this point, perhaps a big TV campaign around the state, newspapers, everything, would that be money well spent? 
Yes, we should. Yeah. We should be doing that. Definitely. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, the Forest Service already does that. As Diane said, Smokey Bear is mm -hmm. out there, but not yeah. enough. Um, and the state forester uh, has the and, and keep in mind that there are bans uh, on fireworks, cigarettes, campfires in uh, for on Forest Service lands. Um, and the state forester can um, also ban those activities on any uh, non-municipal uh, land uh, and on state lands. Uh, so there are, are, there are uh, requirements, but they are uh, honored in the breach uh, mm -hmm. rather than, uh, rather than uh, in, and, and are largely unenforced. I mean, it's one thing to uh, have a public relations campaign, but it's another thing to enforce those regulations. Right. And the Forest Service just doesn't have the personnel to do that. Mm -hmm. They're lucky to be able to feel, feel the firefighters uh, to fight the fires, mm -hmm. which are also, just to Ed's point, quite costly, uh, quite, quite costly. Millions of dollars are spent for every one of these fires in fire suppression alone right. and that doesn't even count the other expenses of you know emergency relief um insurance protection uh, all those all those other things that happen uh during a fire and in its aftermath mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. ed you know i want you to pick up on that it, it seems to me and this has been discussed before this is not my my idea why does the federal government leave this up to states to fight their own, you know, fires? Why don't we have a federal, I don't know, not a task force, but a federal something that they come in and actually do this? We pay them ta good tax money <laughs> to do these kinds of things. And they, why don't they have all the planes, have all the fire suppression stuff at their disposal, ready to come in instead of leaving it for the governors to, to figure this out? And you're right, Gene, the, the federal government puts it on the states. I mean, there is some federal support and, and, and from time to time. But why can't uh, they take the lead? I mean, you know what I mean? Why, why, are, they, why are they in a support position? Yeah, and, and, that, and that, that's right, Gene. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's, I, I guess in many cases, you know, there's, there's the argument. What is the federal government's responsibility? What is the state's? And mm -hmm. I think somewhere down the line, a decision was, was made. And, and maybe the maybe the states wanted a little more control over how they deal with their fire situation, you know, because if you if you give turnover more control on this issue to the federal government, then when it comes to burns and, and other things of managing the forest lands, uh, that way may, may remove some of the control from the state. So mm -hmm. there may have been some issues in the back that just the federal government has taken a step back and, and allowed the states to do it. But, this, but the federal government is a resource. They do have the resources. And yeah, I would like to see a little more federal government involvement. Mm -hmm. I, I know they have become involved. I don't know why they have not become more involved. I mean, but, but they oh. do, uh, and they should be involved. Right. Senator Feldman, pick up on that if you would. I, I really think they are taking the lead. Okay. And they, they are, um, you know, this is beyond one state's capability. Right. And that is why you see hotshot crews directed into those fire areas mm -hmm. from other states. Mm -hmm. And uh, those, uh, and that's the U.S. Forest Service. Mm -hmm. And that is the federal government. And they set up incident command centers uh, there was one set up recently in, in Hamas, 
uh, for information on the Cerro Palado fire. Mm -hmm. um, and they came and they, they give the local residents information about where the fire is, where it spreads, where the evacuations orders are. And so we have, you know, over a, a thousand firefighters uh, now in the state of New Mexico, and uh, many of them are from out of state. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's due to the agreements that the Forest Service has mm -hmm. um, in, in its wildland firefighting um, uh, uh, task forces and crews. Mm -hmm. But you know, you know, I, I'm curious, Senator uh, Snyder, let me ask you this as well. I really don't hear a lot of senators, I don't want to you know, put our senators under the bus here, but when fire season ends, it always seems like the discussion ends with it. And you never really hear like, well, you know what, this is getting worse, here's our plan for next year, here's our plan for the year after that. And I say particularly about the issue Ed brought up earlier, which is uh, manpower. And these folks being paid $15 an hour to risk their lives going from fire to fire to fire. I just, where's the push in Congress to get better pay, recruit more firefighters, all that kind of stuff. Am I off here? I just never hear that during the off fire season. No, I think we, I think we're mm -hmm. very human in the sense that we go, oh, it's gone. Now we can breathe for a few months, but that's not what's really happening. Mm -hmm. We're not, in my opinion, we're not preparing enough in advance. Uh, what the report I talked about earlier, the mm -hmm. least fires, which is interesting to me, are Delaware, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Connecticut. All, and they all have forest. They all have more water, obviously, and moisture than we right. do. Right. <laughs> but somewhere in the middle, there must be some states we could learn some best practices from. Mm -hmm. What What can we? What can New Mexico do? And I look at all this money that we have right now, and if there was ever going to be a time to invest in mm -hmm. the staff, the equipment, the and I know from when I was in the Senate how hard I fought to get equipment, additional equipment for our public safety people is uh, forest people come way below them right. in, in the priorities. Right. And I'm just going, you got a chance here, do something. This is the time to take that money and invest it in what we need to do to keep our people safe. Good points there. Uh, go go ahead, real quick. quick. Mm -hmm. This is a really a political issue, and there's this tug of war as to who takes the lead, the state or the federal government. Yep. The previous federal administrations has thrown it on. There was some criticism with how the, the fires were being dealt with in, in California. Mm -hmm. And the, the federal government's position at that time was, that's your problem. You deal with it. Uh, and they sort of put it on the states. So it is a, it's a political hot potato, pardon the pun. Uh, so to speak, when it comes to who ultimately takes control. But there is some shared responsibility. Mm -hmm. Maybe there needs to be a discussion about more of it and how to be more efficient. Absolutely. Hey, thank you all for that discussion. This is obviously a very complex issue, with, complex issue without a lot of clear solutions. We're going to keep trying to make sense of it for you through the weeks and months to come. We'll check back in with our line panelists in about 10 minutes to talk about some of the recent political developments ahead of the June primary. Another story we've been following closely here on the show over the course of about the last year is uh, the atrocities that have occurred at uh, Native American boarding schools, particularly in Canada, where there have been several mass graves found. 
We know there are similar histories here in the United States, including here in Albuquerque. We have talked about uh, plans for um, a memorial or just a designation or, or what to do with the site of uh, an Indian boarding school here in Albuquerque on Indian School Road near the Indian Pueblo Cultural Center. Uh, and the most recent news coming out, and this is an interesting wrinkle, we have Pope Francis who has apologized to Canada for the church's involvement in those atrocities. Of course, many of these uh, boarding schools were connected to churches as a way to try to uh, decolonize these students, um, to strip away their language and their culture, and to uh, anglicize them, basically. And so now we have this historic apology to Canada, and so lots of folks would like to see a similar uh, apology for the annals, for the records uh, here in uh in North America, in the United States, throughout Turtle Island. And so our correspondent, Antonia Gonzalez, reached out to a couple members of the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition to talk a little bit more about the history, the significance of this apology, and what it means for Pueblo and Native communities. So here we are. Send it to Antonia Gonzalez. Samuel and Joni, welcome to New Mexico in Focus. Thank you. Joni, start us off and just tell us, what was your reaction when you heard that Pope Francis had apologized to Canada's indigenous people for the Catholic Church's role in the Indian residential schools? Thank you for your question, Antonia. You know, for me personally, it brought up a lot of unresolved um, trauma, thinking about all of the research that I've conducted as a student currently at the University of Washington Tacoma pursuing a doctorate in educational leadership and also my work for the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition based out of uh, Minnesota and also in deep reflection of my Pueblo Irish um, roots here in New Mexico and understanding the deeply entwined um, and very nuanced ways in which Catholicism has woven itself into our public culture. I also reflected on the ways in which our survivors and their families, as well as those who did not return home, may have um, had mixed feelings on the apology, whether it was accepted wholeheartedly or that it's a good start but personally I feel that um, going back to my own public and core values forgiveness is one of the um, important pieces that we practice on a daily basis and um, for me I feel like it's a really good opportunity to begin having these conversations. And Samuel your thoughts what did you think when you heard Pope Francis apologize to Canada's indigenous people? Uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you for having uh, our voice on, on this segment right now, and I really appreciate the words shared by Joni. Um, it, it's, a, it's a complicated and nuanced setting, of course, as Joni mentions, um, very much looking at it as uh, an important dialogue starter. And uh, I think, number one, most importantly, the recognition of the harms done 
I think is uh, always a good place to start. But as we know and what we have seen um, with uh, apologies and land acknowledgments made in the past, we must know that actions and uh, an intention to address the social conditions that could create a systemic uh, environment of oppression uh, such as the federal Indian boarding school policies uh, of the United States of Canada. And um, on behalf of the Catholic Church, uh, issuing an apology, uh, of course, I think is important. And, and, it, and it, can't be, um, it can't be understated that uh, for, for many survivors, descendants, families, relatives that have been deeply impacted by this, I know that there are a lot of folks that have been waiting a long time to hear words such as these. And so there is some healing power in that, um, in that the ability to transform um, those deep wounds into a place of, of hope, of growth, of, of healing. That said, we know that there's also a lot that the Catholic Church and, and other Christian denominations and settler nation governments can do to be able to uh, back up those words of apology and um, the work of the of the healing coalition uh, has for years been been very adamant about uh, these Christian denominations as well as the federal government to increase the access of boarding school records and documents. Those documents that have been shown to generate uh, such healing power for relatives that are looking to find out more about their their ancestors, um, their relatives that in some cases are still living. Uh, those documents often are uh, so powerful for families, for nations to be able to more deeply understand uh, the, 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 the scope of, of, of damage, the scope of the impacts uh, which are still ongoing. Uh, we also know that within the settler nations of the United States and Canada, that uh, these are, are two countries that have uh, underwhelming narratives of Native history, of Indigenous history within the social and the political discourse of these lands. And uh, records such as this would be very powerful sources of information for uh, societies to, to reckon with these pasts. Um, and we're also very inspired by the, uh, the delegates that were there to receive the apology, um, to to make their words known, and to uh, to to ask that the Pope revoke the doctrine of discovery, uh, we find that to be a very important uh, actionable step that uh, does not just have historical impacts; it has deep contemporary impacts. It's not just a, a document that was issued or a set of documents that were issued in the 1400s. Um, as recently as 2005, there were, was a uh, Supreme Court case um, where Cheryl versus Oneida was um, was was settled by the majority opinion, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who mentioned that the doctrine of discovery was a reason why the Oneida Nation could not claim purchased land as sovereign lands. And so even now in this contemporary moment, we see the implications of the doctrine of discovery. And uh, it's important that, that we, we see these uh, instances as, op as opportunities to be able to 
to get it right. And I think revoking the doctrine of discovery as well as releasing those boarding school records are very uh, immediate actionable items that the Catholic Church and other Christian denominations can do um, to be able to uh, walk in a good way with Native people. And Joni, the apology from Pope Francis was to Indigenous people in Canada. What do you think people here in the United States when it comes to Native Americans, Alaska Natives who went through boarding school um, systems here, which a lot of our stories mirror what was going on in Canada. What do you think that Native people here want to see from the Catholic Church? Thank you. I um, can agree more with my brother Sam and I definitely feel that this is a great step. There's so much momentum happening right now and um, much like our Métis, our Inuit and First Nations relatives in Canada, we want an acknowledgement as well here in the United States and it's important to also um, understand that each community and their respective experiences are going to be very different in terms of what they define as reparations, what that could look like. But in terms of a call to action for right now and taking those measurable steps, I think that the next um, opportunity would be for the Pope to come to the United States as well to step foot on our soil here on Turtle Island and to begin having those conversations with our communities. And anything to add to that, Samuel, about not only just um, here, you know, the lower 48 tribes, but also people in Alaska as well that um, you work with have some similar boarding school stories? I think that history cannot be ignored. Um, and we understand that boarding school policies were, um, along with other aggressive assimilationalist policies, were a part of the formation of the settler states on Turtle Island, um, in Canada, the United States, even in Mexico, and the rest of the so-called Americas. Um, so it, it's 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 un uh, it, it it is an inescapable uh, entanglement that that is clearly there and and one of the things that i think is is really helpful to try to understand where and how this apology has come to be um it it didn't come out of nowhere and we understand that with the fi the findings of first nations peoples um with the the ground penetrating radar and magnetometry cemetery survey results of of the past year um they don't they, they have not been had under um, just a in a vacuum. They have not emerged as a, a random set of occurrences and folks that are not as um, aware of, of this ongoing work that has been happening um, on Turtle Island for, you know, many decades, many generations of truth seeking, of truth telling. Um, had a, a very consequential moment in uh, with the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, in in the early 2000s and uh, so Canada is in some in some ways shape or form uh, a bit further ahead than the United States but this goes to show how um, what the consequences are and how many implications there are with truth and, and, and accountability measures such as the Canadian TRC. One of the things that we hope to be able to learn from those processes uh, here in the United States is that when cemetery surveys 
uh, costs are not made, are not appropriated by uh, the settlement or by a federal government, that those processes are going to happen whether, whether or not they're funded by, um, by, by the government. And, and that's why we're seeing many of those results happen right now, um, because First Nations took it upon themselves to be able to, to get these results for, for their families, for their nation. And um, so we, we see those as critically linked in the contemporary history of, of this ongoing work, and um, which reminds us of the importance of a similar type of commission that is needed here in the United States. Um, as, as it relates to the work in the coalition, we um, helped to write uh, both HR 5444 and Senate Bill 2907, the Truth and Healing Commission Bill on Indian Boarding Schools Policy Act. Um, and we are generating a lot of interest, a lot of uh, doing a lot of education work and advocacy around the bill. But this is work that needs to be codified into law and needs to be uh, included within the political discourse of the United States. Uh, elders have their stories, families have their stories, but the longer that we wait, especially amid a, uh, a COVID-19 pandemic, um, we don't have to you know, talk too much about how much that virus has already devastated our communities, but uh, we know that there are elders that have stories that are, uh, that are ready to share them to, uh, in, in testimony in these processes. Uh, we know that large scale um, education, awareness, and, and accountability-seeking moments can be here, but we, we understand that that's an important step. And uh, the, the Catholic Church, uh, uh, recognizing that this is something worth apologizing for in the Canadian experience, I believe will be seen within the United States here. And a lot of that work is ongoing. A lot of that work needs to continue to be done. Um, and so we see that as, as chronologically connected. And there is a national investigation here in the United States led by Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland, and the coalition is taking part in that. Why is it important to uncover these documents, to have people share their stories? And it is traumatizing. Every single person in Indian country has been impacted general generations by Indian boarding schools. So we're not talking about a history that's a long time ago, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. it's still impacting our tribal communities and it's, it's hard to talk about. So Joni, why is it so important for this investigation to uncover um, documents, but also just share with the public? It's so important and critical right now because we don't know, as of today still, how many children went missing while at federal Indian run boarding schools. And I think that there's so much momentum happening right now with um, our Pueblo sister, Secretary Holland, to be able to make um, some really great strides in this area and to call to action um, the opportunity to have access to these records, to church records, to records at the National Archive and um, other locations, and also to really understand the intergenerational impacts of trauma that it's had on communities. And we've seen these ripple effects carried out through the timeline of federal Indian law and policy and looking at education being one of those long-standing pieces in which uh, children and families um, and the push for English only literacy, the push for um, 
the, the, the Catholic denomination uh, within um, communities here in New Mexico to be the way forward. And now we're in a race with time to save our cultures and languages, to heal our trauma, to raise our families. And um, you know, I, I feel that this is also generational work. It's um, the prayers of our ancestors who are not very far removed. Um, six or seven generations back who attended places like Carlisle Indian Industrial School and who did not make it home. And those who experienced trauma while at school and or the loss of their peers and then returning to their communities and trying to reintegrate themselves into um, Pueblo culture or indigenous culture in general, we see those effects today in um, particularly uh, families and at the communal level when we think about nation building, when we think about the opportunities that we have to um, continue the conversation around how we reclaim our children through education and language. And Joni, you had mentioned um, Pueblo people have a deep connection with Catholic faith. And many people here in New Mexico, a lot of uh, Pueblo people here, what yeah. would that mean to them to have an apology from the Catholic Church? Yeah, such a great question. And um, with all due respect to my elders, to our Pueblo leadership and all their respective roles, I think it's a really important conversation to begin having about addressing the trauma that exists in our bloodlines and understanding why some of these policies that we have um, experienced continue to affect our communities in a number of ways, whether it's through substance abuse, domestic violence, sexual violence, and knowing that these are things that are not traditional to, the, to us, but they come from somewhere. So acknowledging this and having open dialogues about bringing awareness to it, I think there's also so much opportunity to really guide ourselves into a place where our children can be proud of who they are, be proud of their Pueblo heritage, be proud of speaking their language, practicing their culture, showing up in their traditional um, regalia, and also knowing that it's our sacred responsibility to raise the next generation, to heal our traumas, and to give them a future that's fruitful where they're thriving. And Samuel, with Joni talking about young people, the coalition's work is to bring truth, justice, and healing, and looking at Indian boarding schools across the United States. Um, there is a new initiative through the coalition helping young people. Tell us a little bit about the scholarship program. So we're really excited to, to be able to, for the second year running, uh, work with the American Indian College Fund to offer scholarships to, um, to, to boarding school descendants, to, to Native students that are seeking to uh, to, to get training, to get a degree that um, would, uh, we know would benefit from having uh, a scholarship, some extra money as we know education is so expensive in our culture. Um, and, and while we wish we could, you know, do much more than we're already committing to, we're very excited to be able to offer 25 scholarships to Native students. Um, last year we were able to uh, fund 20 scholarships and we we're trying to be able to expand our reach in that way. Um, and we got a, a, an incredible amount of interest from this scholarship. There were hundreds and hundreds of stories that were submitted from students. Uh, part of this scholarship was to um, 
humbly ask for students to be able to have conversations with their relatives and to be able to start that that process or continue in many instances, continue that process of of sharing those stories. Uh, we know everybody's in a different place with regard to healing this history. Um, historical trauma is no easy conversation to have, um, but we know that in, in order to be able to uh, to heal from it, that one of the most uh, critical things that we can do to initiate that process is to confront it and to name it because we can't heal from that which we cannot even name. And uh, so some of these conversations um, quite literally, you know, brought us to tears just hearing some of these some of these stories that were being had. Um, and, and, and we know that we are strong, resilient people. Um, and, and so these stories, so many layers, uh, of course, they, they, they are, uh, they are beautiful to read. There's, they are also have that, um, you know, that element of grieving as well. But at the end of the day, we know that this scholarship opportunity, this program, um, for these students, they are taking advantage of their educational opportunities in, in this kind of way. And so, you know, one of the things that I feel is really profound is that we know that schooling was utilized to assimilate uh, our relatives. Um, and, and in some cases, those assimilation policies still are very stubborn and codified and contemporary policies still to this day. But what is inspiring to us at the Healing Coalition is to see Native students looking at their familial history, looking at the history of their communities and their nations and, and committing to want to utilize their training and their, their vocational experience, their university, their college experience to be able to uh, improve the lives of their families, their relatives, their communities and their nations. Um, and so we're really we're really happy to be able to to have this this uh, relationship with with the college fund and uh, and to be able to to expand that as we go forward in, in the years to come. Well, thank you for that, Samuel and Joni. Thank you both for joining us today and sharing a little bit about your thoughts on the Pope's apology and the work of the coalition. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes. Thank you for having us on the show. Time for Our Land. This is our environmental series with correspondent Laura Paskus and a story she has been tracking for over a year now. And uh, she sat down with Maggie Hart Stebbins, who is the state's natural resources trustee. They talked about a little less than a year ago about a proposed settlement over pollution uh, that was caused by the Department of Defense at the old Fort Wingate site near Grants, New Mexico. And that settlement recently within the last couple of weeks has been finalized, roughly one and a half million dollars. And so Laura wanted to sit down with Maggie and find out uh, why that amount, where that money goes. Also, similar settlement in the works around the Gold King mine spill, which you remember from six, seven years ago now. And of course, all of this under the auspices of the Arland Investigation Groundwater War, PFAS contamination at military installations in New Mexico. She originally sat down to talk to Maggie about the fact that that settlement was in the works, all as the Department of Defense had announced that that Fort Wingate was a possible site of PFAS contamination, uh, although they had not alerted 
Maggie Hart-Stebbins as the Natural Resources Trustee to that information. So lots to follow up on here and to get into. And here is our Arland Environment Correspondent, Laura Paskus. Maggie Hart-Stebbins, welcome to New Mexico in Focus. Oh, it is great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs> um, so let's start with your office. What's the mission of the New Mexico Natural Resources Trustee? So in 2019, Governor Lujan Grisham appointed me to be New Mexico's Natural Resources Trustee. And what our office does is we, um, we sue polluters. So when there is a release of some kind of hazardous um, substance into New Mexico's environment, there, um, the environment department plays the role of making sure that gets cleaned up to a health-based standard. Then the Office of the Natural Resources Trustee um, reaches out to the party that's responsible for that release of contamination, and we ask for compensation for the community for the injury that has taken place to natural resources. So natural resources, um, groundwater, surface water, drinking water, um, wildlife habitat, um, biota, which is, you know, any part of the natural, um, you know, the biological community that exists in a place. And so, you know, we are, we are very complimentary and we partner with the Environment Department, but our role really is to make sure that New Mexicans are compensated when they have suffered a loss of, uh, loss of access uh, to their natural resources. So last month, your office announced a settlement involving Fort Wingate. Correct. Um, with the U.S. government on behalf of the U.S. Army. And for people who might not be familiar, um, with Fort Wingate, it's a 15,000 acre depot that um, the Army started using in the 19th century, mm -hmm. used through the 90s. Um, and I guess they're still used for missile launching activities. Right. Um, so what is the settlement that your office was working through with the U.S. government and the Zuni tribe and the Navajo Nation. Fort Wingate was used for decades to store munitions and destroy obsolete munitions. And so um, there were releases of contamination into the water, into the soil, um, and destruction of, um, of habitat. And so in 2008, actually, my predecessor, um, uh, Jim Baca, when he was Natural Resources Trustee, he began the process of bringing a natural resources damage claim against the Army. So this started in 2008, um, and there was quite a bit of work done to evaluate, in, in partnership with the Army, actually, it was a cooperative assessment um, uh, to evaluate what was, what's the extent of the damage, and then work done to figure out what, what needs to be done to bring these natural resources back to the original condition. And that's our mission at ONRT, is to bring natural resources to the, back to the condition they were in before contamination. So this work between 2008 and 2012, there was a lot of work done, again, Zuni, um, Zuni tribe, Navajo Nation, um, the BIA was, you know, was engaged in that, the Fish and Wildlife Service, the Forest Service, you know, in this conversation about what has to happen to, you know, compensate the community, bring the resources back to their original condition. Um, in 2012, there was a consent decree that was uh, agreed upon in principle and so um, for the last many years, we have been working to, um, to get all the, the signatures, uh, get that finalized, and that was filed in federal court um, just a couple weeks ago. So there's a 30-day co uh, public comment period, so anyone who's interested can go to our website, um, click on the Fort Wingate links, and see what that consent decree is. It involves um, 
a payment of about um, $1.4 million that will be used um, to compensate past costs um, and pay for um, future restoration projects. So when I've, when I've looked through the environmental cleanup documents, there's like things like explosives, perchlorates, nitrates, PCBs, um, pesticides, like all kinds of contamination out there. How much of that has been cleaned up already and how much is still like a work in progress? I don't know the exact numbers on that. The Environment Department, the New Mexico Environment Department, their, their Hazardous Waste Bureau is responsible for that element of it. Our piece is kind of separate and independent of that. So that $1.4 million that you mentioned, like what does that go toward? Because when I think of like the scale of the pollution out there, that doesn't seem like $1.4 million doesn't seem like enough to like clean it up or fix it. So what does that $1.4 million go toward? I think that the $1.4 million, there was, um, there's about $1.2 million that is for future restoration projects. Um, and so that can be things, um, anything that, that benefits the water quality, water availability. So that can be like phreatophyte removal. It can be um, cutting off uh, current sources of pollution that continue to degrade the water quality. Um, there's about $120,000 for cultural losses. And so um, I think we will defer to the to Zuni tribe and the Navajo Nation to determine how they want that, that money to be used. Um, and then there is part of that settlement is past ONRT costs, um, or actually past trustee costs. So all of our co-trustees have incurred costs, and then the, the future costs of putting together a restoration plan. We had talked a couple of years ago, the Pentagon had added Fort Wingate to its list of possible locations where PFAS or mm -hmm. perm polyfluoroalkyl substances had been released. Did the Pentagon ever complete that study? Do we know if there's PFAS out there as part of the contamination? Not to my knowledge. So the settlement agreement that we have now really covers known sources of contamination or known contamination. So PFAS, at, you know, at, at last, to my knowledge, that determination of PFAS has not been made yet. I don't know where they are in that process. Um, but um, we do, we will always have the um, opportunity to go back and um, pursue that should PFAS be found at Fort Wingate. Okay, that's good to know because I was reading in the settlement that was filed in federal court, it says that parties can't sue over certain things, but so if there, if there were additional problems, the state can kind of... Right, this consent decree really covers known, the contaminants that were known, uh, that are known as of right now. Okay, um, and like you mentioned, there is a public comment period until May yes. 2nd. We'll put that on our website as Great. well. Your office negotiated another settlement recently. Let's talk about Gold King Mine. Um, so most, I think New Mexicans are familiar with the Gold King Mine release. So it was a, um, a release of many millions of gallons of um, uh, toxic uh, contaminants that were released outside of Silverton, then flowed down into the Animas River into New in New Mexico and into the San Juan, turned the rivers kind of a, a bright yellow color. Um, so the state of New Mexico, and so that so the Attorney General, the New Mexico Attorney General, the and the Environment Department brought a, a lawsuit against um, both the mining defendants, um, their contractors, and the um, 
sorry, the mining defendants, the EPA, and their contractors. And so um, in January of 2021, um, those parties, including ONRT, reached a settlement with the mining defendants um, that, that brought $11 million to the state of New Mexico. $1 million of that was for natural resource damages. So that came to ONRT. And just um, two weeks ago, we, so we went through a whole public input process. We reached out to the community in the Four Corners area. How do you think that million dollars should be used? What are the projects that you feel would compensate for the injury to natural resources? And um, we received four proposals. We have enough funding to fund them all. So we're very excited. Those um, we are, um, we have went through again, public comment once we had uh, selected the projects and um, are now in the process of developing the MOAs with um, the project proponents to get those projects underway. So um, that's very exciting. And what are some of those projects? Like what, what do they involve? So we'll partner with San Juan County um, government on a boat ramp that will um, really help compensate for the loss of uh, um, access to the river for um, the outdoor recreation industry. We will be partnering with the Hogback um, Chapter House uh, to help improve their irrigation system. Mm -hmm. um, a partnership with uh, Farmington, the city of Farmington on a, a pavilion that will um, provide better, um, better conditions for their farmers market. Again, looking at how, you know, the, the farmers, the agriculture industry was really um, damaged by th that release, both in terms of you know, what happened to their, their fields, but also the stigma that is, continues to be associated with agricultural products from that area. Um, and the fourth one, we're partnering with the San Juan Soil and Water Conservation District on a soil health project that will both improve water quality and provide a real benefit for farmers um, who are participating to lower their costs and improve their soil conditions. So um, all four of those projects are um, really exciting and um, I think we're just really eager to get started. Well, thanks Maggie hart Sevens well, for joining me and for watching out for New Mexico's natural resources. Well, thank you and thanks to you. Let's wrap things up on this episode back with our line opinion panel. Talk about it all the time, but a great thing about this podcast is our ability to bring you extra content that we just don't have time for when we're taping the show each week. An hour sounds like a long time, but with everything we're trying to cover, all the conversations we're trying to have, it's just never enough time. And one of the things we do each and every week with our line opinion panel is uh, a Facebook Live that we call One More Thing. It's sort of a, a warm-up for the show each week and a chance for the line panelists to talk about something else that they are focused on that we're not going to be talking about in the show. And if you want to watch these when they happen live, usually about 11 a.m. on Thursdays, make sure you are following and liking the New Mexico in Focus Facebook page. But this was a, a good one and a lot of great information in here including a couple of election reform uh, issues that are going to play heavily in the upcoming primary, now just a little over a month away in this midterm election year. The first is same-day voter registration, so you can actually go up to your polling place in early voting or on election day, register to vote if you haven't already, and cast your ballot that same day. Similar to that, we have a growing number of declined to state. These are folks who are not registered with either the Republican, Democrat, Libertarian Party. 
Uh, and so you can actually change that party affiliation on the day of so that declined estate can participate in the primary process, something they haven't been able to do in the past. Uh, so Dee Dee Feldman, who does a lot of great work in this area, as you will hear about, has got all the details you need to know about that. Here once again, Gene Grant and the line. I'm Gene Grant here in the studios of New Mexico PBS with our line opinion panelists joining me on Zoom. We're about to record this week's show, but before we do, we like to warm up by taking a turn at other issues that are on our minds and do it via Facebook Live now and again. Let me start with Senator, we got two senators. <laughs> Senator Dee Feldman, which way? <laughs> I love this, having two senators is pretty awesome actually. Let's hear one more thing this week. Well, my one more thing is the confluence of two reforms, uh, election reforms that will hit uh, for the primary this year, which is coming up real soon. Mm -hmm. And uh, they and I and I got to preface this by saying that I um, I do work for Common Cause New mm -hmm. Mexico, and both of these issues have been in our um, in our mirror. Uh, or our viewfinder. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, the primary is the first time when uh, same day voter registration uh, will go into effect throughout New Mexico. Uh -huh. You can walk into the polls and register uh, on election day. Uh, if you present a uh, New Mexico driver's license or some other form of a photo ID. Um, and at the same time, uh, there is also a measure that allows um, decline to state voters or independents, what we call independents, to, uh, to uh, on election day uh, or in the early voting period, uh, walk in and, uh, and sign up for a, a particular party, either Republican or Democrat, and hence be able to vote in the primaries because remember uh decline to state folks cannot now vote in primaries and that's a big uh, a big disadvantage for the this growing number of people mm -hmm. who are registering now as independents i think there's like 300,000 wow. now throughout the state and they can't vote in primaries right. and now as a result of the confluence of these two uh, reforms they can walk in on election day and they can register as either a Democrat or a Republican, and then they can vote in that party's primary. So this will really, if people found out about it mm -hmm. and the word is just beginning to get out, uh, that could really increase voter participation mm -hmm. in primaries, which you know are determinative in a lot of elections because we have uh, so many districts that are completely Democratic or completely Republican. And so those people that uh, are not of that party, um, you know, they, they don't have a voice in who's representing them. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is not an open primary system, but it's kind of a baby step in that direction. A couple of quick questions, uh, Senator. This is so fascinating. I'm a declined state. I mean, this is good news for yeah. me. What are we talking about uh, as a percentage of registered voters in New Mexico that are DTS at this point? You know, I think it's like 23% wow. now. 
Um, and, you know, it's always been some, and, and these are rough figures, sure. but it's always been something like the Democrats are 45% and the Republicans are 33% of registered voters. Mm -hmm. um, and now the number of independent voters has been increasing every year and they're, they're younger voters oh. uh, primarily. Uh -huh. And they are, um, they are discouraged by both of the political parties right. and uh, they see the gridlock, they see, and so they're very cynical and they don't sign up uh, and often they don't vote. So uh, this this is a this could be a game changer. Uh, it doubt. could be a, a game changer in terms of you know if I were a political candidate right now, um, and and maybe Diane could could tell me what she would do. Mm -hmm. But um, I mean I would make an outreach to those people right. uh, who could now vote for me um, in the primary, whereas in the past. I would just focus on the base, mm -hmm. just my base, the likely voters who would turn out. And you know what? That increases polarization because my message to those base voters would be, you know, a very democratic message. It wouldn't be uh, a more moderate kind of message that could appeal uh, uh, more broadly. And so um, I think this does have the potential for uh helping kind of heal our, uh, our great divide. That's interesting. Yeah. Senator Snyder, do you have a point on that? Because that is interesting. I, I, thank you. I have a question. Please. Uh, and I understand what they're allowed to do, but are the declined estates and the whatever, whatever categories we have, yeah. besides Democrat and Republican, can I understand them coming in and registering to be either one of the two major parties but can a Republican come in and change their registration to Democrat? No. Or vice versa? No. That, okay. is written, that is written into the law mm -hmm. the, that was uh, sponsored by Senator uh, John Sapien in, I think it was 2020, that, um, you know, people can't sort of cynically manipulate the right. primary in that way. I couldn't register as a Republican and vote for the person that I thought was the most likely to lose. And you couldn't <laughs> write, write, register as a Democrat and vote for the, the person that, you know, your candidate would like to face mm -hmm. in the general. So. Um, so that's a good that's a good portion of the law, I think. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And Senator Snyder, you know, when you, and Ed, of course, as well, when you think about it, I mean, 23 percent of the people able to get into a primary, that would change a whole lot of things when you think about it. That's no small change. I mean, as a that's no, please, that's go ahead, no Senator. Small, but I have to tell you, some of the districts like Senate District 15, we've had a huge percentage of uh, declined estates mm -hmm. or uh, in the district for years. And I believe I've been trying to track down, but I believe through this last year that it actually has increased the number of declined estates in, in this, or what, I think there are two other categories, but that would be very interesting. And I agree totally with Senator Feldman that I would, I mean, if I was paying attention and knew this and was running for office, I would definitely be out talking to those people. They, mm -hmm. And I guess I'm, what I'm trying to say is, I always did when running because of the nature and makeup of the district. 
but that's critical. Right. If you, yeah. if, and if you're not paying attention, it could get you. Mm -hmm. Well, and then there is a question of whether people who do not register with one party or the other, um, wanting to be independent, whether they are, um, whether they are active voters anyway. They might right. just not register with one party or the other because they're they're not going to vote anyway. Right. Uh, but who knows? I mean, uh, you know, they're becoming independents, of course, on a national level are becoming more and more important in the presidential race. And the message right. of pre uh, presidential candidates is often geared toward those independents because mm -hmm. they're swing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, it was interesting. The tenor of the. Uh, campaign ads we've been seeing, if you were having to appeal, not just to your hard base, but if you had to appeal to decline to states. Yeah. Hmm. Good point, so, good point. Yeah. Senator Snyder, pick up the cudgel, if you will, for your one more thing this it, week. Mm -hmm. I, well, I've been <clears throat> impressed with, um, and, and this morning, uh, this is Thursday's paper, mm -hmm. uh, with the people who have stepped up, you know, we've been seeing it for months now, helping others and uh, the ukraine i mean it and i my heart goes i know we're always we've got the red cross and a number of international organizations that are going to work to help people but my heart is touched by the animals mm -hmm. uh, the zoo, zoo in ukraine is just breaking my heart with what's going on but there are a number of people in fact as a couple who are veterinarians stayed and established a place where people could bring their pets if they couldn't take them with them. Mm -hmm. A lot of countries, I believe Poland is one, you're allowed to bring your pet with you if it's a, a domesticated pet, not a wild animal or something. Mm -hmm. But this morning there it was, uh, and I think the first thing I heard on, on a rescue area in New Mexico was Roswell's uh, fairgrounds and uh, you know their uh, livestock, barns and right. things like that were immediately opened up for the people in the southern part of the state, mm -hmm. particularly the Rio Doso area who had livestock mm -hmm. and being able to save them. And then this in northern New Mexico, Las Vegas has done a lot of that. They're one of the safest, not that there's any really safe place. But I was reading uh, about Kate uh, uh, Pace, I believe is her last name. She is from, and I didn't even know they had this, the first poet laureate of the city of Las Vegas. Ah. And wow, that's cool. She's one? also a retired firefighter and she has a horse named Charlie. And it, the story was about her and she's a poet and she wrote, she had friends come in and, and gonna help her and her home burned, but she then, and she lost her mother's music box oh. and so she wrote a poem called memories don't burn mm -hmm. and i thought how incredibly wonderful that is and there's a little a bit of it in the paper I, I look forward to seeing the whole poem but people said when they read that it gave them some hope and i'm so proud of everybody i a lot of places a lot of the dog and animal rescues are providing uh, supplies, food supplies mm -hmm. to these areas that are, are saving animals. And I'm just, I sit back and, and with all the conflict and everything going on in our country, when I read these stories or see them on the news, 
it gives my heart hope that that we really are that the majority of us are really good people and that we can like senator Feldman said take many steps to where we get rid of this hard partisan politics it it doesn't have to be that way mm-hmm. and i'm one of those that i i'm trying to do my part to see that it doesn't and i just i i, I made a little bet with myself about when we would because i'm a republican when i would start seeing the attack ads for the gubernatorial candidates mm-hmm. and they came out swinging mm-hmm. hard yeah. on that and and i'm just going and i know every one of those candidates and i'm just going not necessary not necessary mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. interestingly bounce back to something senator feldman uh, uh just mentioned about the decline of state do you think the dynamics would be different if we had that system in place now between the two gubernatorial candidates on the Republican side? I think if they were aware of it and paying yeah. attention to it, yes. Mm-hmm. My question is, is because I I didn't know the details. I knew we had something in place starting mm-hmm. to cover the primary, but I didn't know the exact details. And I'm not sure they do. Right. And yes, to answer your question, yes, I yeah. think it would very much make a difference. Interesting. Yeah. Go ahead, Senator uh, uh, Feldman. You look like you had a thought there too. I, I just want to say that there, the Secretary of State today, um, on her Twitter page and on her uh, website, has put up sort of an infographic about how this works. Ah. So uh, oh, I think good, folks good. could go there and look for it. But just to Diane's uh, comments, mm-hmm. I mean. Another wonderful story by Ollie Reed in the Albuquerque Journal, one of our, I think, New Mexico treasures, uh, as well as that poet laureate from um, Las Vegas. And I just can't agree more. The, The things that have been so moving in the past few weeks have been uh, a Mr. Lovato uh, last night on PBS uh, covered he went up and, and was uh, donating supplies of his own to people at the shelters. And he said it was the most moving experience of his life to be able to help wow. in this way. Wow. And I just thought that was such a great lesson for all of us. I love it. Interesting stuff. One quick thing. Please. You can check out if, if somebody solicits you. There are several different ways to check on charities. And the one I frequently use is called Charity Navigator. There's also Charity Watch. And there's the Better Business Bureau does Wise Giving Alliance. But those are three sources where you can check on the status of whether they're legitimate or not. Mm -hmm. And also in some of them, a little further down, it gives you the amount of money that goes to administration and how much actually goes to direct help. So I uh, just... Check it out, folks. Don't don't be caught in the shuffle. Senator Snyder, what was that last uh, organization again? I, I didn't quite it, catch it. The Better Business Bureau. Okay. It's called Wise Giving Alliance. Wise Giving Alliance. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and watch. Those are really good sources. Okay. Good stuff. Woo, a lot of good information here. This is really good. But the pet thing for New Mexico right now with wildfires is a serious issue. I'm glad you brought that up. That's a, the shelter network is really cranking right now. It's really out there. Yeah. So, you know, all over Facebook. Our friend Ed Perea is here today as well. Ed, always good to see you. What's your one more thing this week? 
Well, this comes from the Here We Go Again department. Uh, locally, these speed vans, which we are hearing <laughs> oh. about, are, yes. are back in business. And you know, you wonder uh, what the wisdom was behind it. Mm -hmm. uh, I get the rationale behind it, don't get me wrong. I mean, we do have a, an issue with speeders and a number of other road-related problems. But with the speed vans, uh, been there, done that. Uh, you know, there's an, an old saying that you do what you did, you get what you got. Right. I'm not sure whether there has been, uh, I'm not sure how this came about. We realized that it was an eight to one vote. So the city council you know, fully supported this and it may be uh, based upon complaints by their constituents. But the previous program was just uh, ripe with, with a lot of issues and a lot of problems associated with it. A lot of trust issues as far as mm -hmm. the government's motivation. And we know there's a, a good segment of the population that probably is a little weary of, of government's motivation sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to look around where this has been tried. In the in the 90s, this was a great idea. Hey, we have this uh, this this way in which we might get the driver's attention, but that came with a lot of problems. And as a result of that, a lot of municipalities mm -hmm. did away with it. They want nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. And as a result of public pressure, uh, we, we had a vote, the, 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 uh, the electorate, here voted it down. Uh, I'm sure that those who voted it down, the vast majority are still living here. So I'm not sure why their position and feelings would have changed. Mm -hmm. It is, uh, it, it's, 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 we may be putting the proverbial cart before the horse right. this, this year. There's speeding problems, but what are the other options? You know, the, the ultimate concern is that those individuals who are likely to get tagged, if you will, from these cameras, are those that are not big abusers, those people who, drivers who are driving downhill and they happen to go 11 miles per hour and they get tagged. The, the more serious drivers, as we see, if you notice, if you paid any attention, it's, you know, we're working the streets for a number of years, these sort of things jump out at me, but the number of people, it, it, drivers out there without license plates. That's right. Without, That's right. without, clear, without clear license plates. Yep. And those tend to be the ones that are more likely to abused the road regulation so i think we need to get on the front end of that and, and maybe if there was a task force and maybe there was that says let's look at the issues and let's engage in some problem solving here right. what do we need to do let's take the step one two three four before we move to this which is a somewhat drastic step and that the city is sort of taking their taking a step back wiping their hands of it and saying okay we're addressing the problem right. and i'm not sure whether they're just addressing the symptom or the problem itself and i think this requires because of the expense to the taxpayers a little more study mm -hmm. interesting ed as, I, as i'm listening to you talk i cannot help but have the picture of that school bus that got hit in the video in sky inside the school bus with those kids flying around getting serious injuries would those speed cameras have made a difference to those two young people that were drag racing on the street street racing in those mustangs would that have stopped them you know from hitting that school bus I, I, the, the, the likelihood is that it wouldn't stop them at all. Mm -hmm. I, it, 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 it appears to be more of an impulsive move by a couple of drivers. Right. Uh, and the speed cameras, especially the, the deterrent effect, um, you know, usually what sure and swift punish, punishment, we've heard that before. You know, we're talking if you get caught by one of these cameras going 11 miles per hour or whatever mm -hmm. your speed might be, it's two to three weeks before That's you right. ever get noticed. That's and, right. And how, is, how will that correct behavior so there are a number of ways of changing the culture of driving mm -hmm. yes i think they are hoping 
that that is the, the result. But I think this is more the end of what needs to be done rather than the beginning. Mm. And so, um, yes, I think we're going to continue to see see these issues because I, I venture to guess that those individuals who were involved in this um, road race uh, wouldn't have thought twice about it, whether they're cameras or not. I agree. I agree. You know, there's a thought out there, guys, that if and when we get to the place in other cities like Detroit, I think Atlanta, a couple others, they take cars. They take them. <laughs> if you're caught going 125 in a, in a marked 45, they take the car, you know, and let you think about it for a couple of weeks. And, and you talk about behavior change. When you don't get, have your own vehicle, that'll change your behavior a little bit. But there are issues with that. A lot of reasons a lot of munis don't go there. So it's, it's an interesting dilemma. Please, Senator. I think we I think we had a city ordinance that did that oh. for people that were uh, convicted of DWI and the court struck it down. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yes, there are, I think there are issues with that. It's a tough one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But Ed's, Ed's right, changing behavior is not going to happen with a little thing flashing at you when you get something in the mail three weeks later. You don't even yeah. remember where you were, you know, you know, let's see how that goes. <laughs> exactly. Is, is that a, $100, is that a deterrent effect? Right. Will that really deter anyone? That's right. Um, and really what, what difference is it going to make in the long run? You know, I think yeah. it's, it's symbolic, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping that we keep a close eye on that and, you know, address it. I'm glad you brought it up. I'm glad you brought it up. A couple of years ago, I tried to get going a street racing task force here with the county right. and the city, and yeah. nobody wanted to play. I mean, I talked to a couple of city councilors. They were like, well, you know, da, da, da. I was like, guys, we got to do something. <laughs> Can't just, you know, leave it up to young people to grow up and put us all in danger while they do. So we'll have That's to wrap right. it up there. It's a great subject. We've got to keep moving. Thanks for joining us. New Mexico in Focus airs, as you might know, Friday nights but also Sunday mornings right here on New Mexico PBS. That's all we got for you this time, but we're hard at work on another episode for you coming out on Monday, uh, starting with some developments, especially in the fundraising area, around the Attorney General's race here in New Mexico. Also, the return to leasing for oil and gas on public lands in New Mexico and what all of that means, plus a whole lot more. And as always, if you want to keep up with the show between now and then, there's lots of ways to do it. And if you have thoughts on topic ideas for us for future episodes, you can leave those as well. You can leave us a recording here within the podcast or hit us up on one of our social media channels. You've got a bunch to choose from. We mentioned Facebook earlier. There's YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. We love to hear from you. And also want to let you know about our on-air show next week. is going to be a really interesting one looking at the history and the legacy of the Rio Grande Sun, which is really a legendary uh, watchdog newspaper weekly newspaper up in Española that we've talked about on the show recently sold uh, and it sold to a group of owners that includes two former Republican Party chairmen. So what does that mean? And we'll be pulling from a 2013 documentary all about the paper as well. So excited to bring that to you. But until then, we'll leave it there for now. Again, everyone stay safe. Keep your fingers crossed about these wins and uh, our thoughts with the firefighters working so hard 
to uh, keep the fires at bay here in New Mexico. Also, all those people who have suffered losses already in the fire season, our thoughts with all of you as well. But as always, this is Kevin McDonald, your host. We thank you for listening. Stay safe. Stay healthy.